Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 181 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to host Ted Harrington, author of the number one bestseller, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. Ted is the executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, or ISE, the company of ethical hackers famous for hacking cars, medical devices, and password managers. He's helped hundreds of companies such as Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Netflix fix tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities. Ted has been featured in more than 100 media outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and Forbes. His team founded and organizes IoT Village, an event whose hacking contest has produced three DEF CON black badges. Ted, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to have you. I know we've interacted a lot over the distant past, and in the interim, you've wrote a great book. It sounds like you guys have continued to do lots of great things. And I must say, given everything going on in the Ukraine right now with Russia, and of course, all the cybersecurity issues around it, this is a very timely topic to have. So I'm really happy you took the time to do that today. As always, I'd like to start off with really one's digital thread. So in other words, the one or more thematic threads that define their digital industry journey. What would you consider to be your digital thread, Ted? There's a few ways you might answer that. But if I look at maybe the common thread throughout my life, it's this drive to get better every day. And I don't even think that was something I necessarily recognized about myself until, I don't know, maybe a few years ago, looking back at my decisions. And that might be an odd answer to a question of like, what's your digital thread? And I'm like, get better. But the reason I state that is that I think that that is the defining trait of what the cybersecurity profession is about. Everyone who excels in security, now, of course, there's people who don't excel, who maybe don't adhere to this mindset, but literally 100% of the people that I know, that I respect and admire across our field, all have that growth mindset. And that's what security is about. You know, people often think about security as, can you get to a state where something is unhackable? And actually... (laughs) You can't. And that's that's why that's the reason I titled my book what I did, because I'm like, man, people keep thinking this idea that something can be unhackable. And I'm, so what's the opposite of that? <laughs> and so that's actually how I arrived at the title. But if the goal is not necessarily that you're going to ever be without security vulnerabilities, what is the goal? Well, the goal is you got to be better today than you were yesterday and you better be better tomorrow than you are today. And when I look at all the sort of steps along my career path that got me to be in the position to lead this group of ethical hackers and be on this forefront of security research and really driving a lot of innovation that's happening that we're fortunate to be part of, it's all because of that sort of mindset to try to get better every day. You know, security in general, cybersecurity specifically, I think many would consider to be a defensive activity and the very nature of hacking, ethical, you know, white hat, et cetera implies a certain amount of proactivity, right? You could say offensive in that regard. And so 
I think it's interesting to see that drive to always get better together with the fact that you guys are very proactive in the way that you approach cybersecurity overall. I think I may know why. In doing some research for this, I saw some early, not only entrepreneurial activity, but political activism in your biography. And so I thought that was kind of interesting because I see that aspect of you doing that. And then I see the move into cybersecurity. So let me ask, is there a connection there? And how did this ultimately lead you to cybersecurity? Yeah, that was a long time ago. I was very heavily involved with political action committee that was trying to really advocate for pro-business type issues in Southern California. I would not consider myself all that politically active anymore. I think I learned from that experience that like, man, this is a nightmare, (laughs) this stuff. (laughs) But I guess if I was, I haven't been asked this question before, so I'm thinking about it right now. But if I was going to draw parallels between that many years, that was probably I was doing that like 15 or maybe 20 years ago to today, I think that one of the commonalities is that both are really, really difficult. They require you to mobilize a community. You need to have a mission that you can sort of evangelize around and rally that community to support that mission. And you ultimately need to persevere. And all of those attributes really are found in security too. So even though political activism wound up not being something that was a forever passion for me, learning how to pursue those ideals Those have been definitely repeatable and have carried through even to today. And so you were right. It was 20 years ago. You co-founded ISC in 2012. The firm, of course, dedicated to securing high-value assets for global enterprises and performing groundbreaking security research. What's ISC's origin story? Our origin story. So it's funny. In 2012, what I did with my business partner, Steve, was we actually rebooted a company that he had started several years prior. So it's kind of funny that we think about the company right now as ISC 2.0, right? We're basically a 10-year-old startup wearing a 17-year-old company's clothing. And the origin story going all the way back to when my business partner, Steve, and his co-founders actually started the company in the first place was they were responding to this claim that was pretty rampant at the time. So this was around 2005. And there was a claim that there's a system that's used in automobiles. It's an anti-theft mechanism. It basically prevents someone from starting the car without the authentic key. And the system was considered to be, putting this in air quotes right now, unhackable. It couldn't be broken. No one could defeat it. <laughs> the problem is you say, when you say that, some hacker-minded computer scientists will gladly say, challenge accepted. And so that was what they wanted to look at. They wanted to see, well, if everyone thinks this thing can't be defeated, can it? Let's take a look at it. And also this car uh, auto theft is a pretty significant issue. I forget what the stats were at the time, but it was talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars in loss is what auto theft represents across the industry. So it really matters to that sector. And so ultimately what they wound up doing was it took a few weeks to reverse engineer the cryptographic algorithm. It took them a few weeks to build this weaponized software radio, and then it took a few weeks to actually get it working. But the ultimate outcome was they were able to use this weaponized software radio in order to start a car without the authentic key, which is exactly what the system was designed to prevent. And what is a pretty cool detail of that story, as Steve will tell it, is that right before publishing the research, they decided, they said, well, companies might be interested in this. So let's just form a company and see what happens. And sure enough, as soon as it hit the news, and that was a big story all over the planet, 
companies came calling and said, hey, you guys understand how hackers think, how they operate, how they break systems. I've got this system. Can you tell me how it would get broken and I'll pay you for it? And today, almost 20 years later, that is actually still the business model where companies come to us to help them find and fix the security vulnerabilities in their systems they're building. <laughs> so I like that ISE 2.0. So beyond simply doing uh, hacking on automobiles, you guys also in that time have done the iPhone, Android OS, medical devices, IoT devices, password managers, and even cryptocurrency wallets. So if you had to take that whole time and summarize it into your observations of white hat hacking during that into three key lessons, what would those be? Well, the first lesson is that security vulnerabilities exist. And what I mean to say by that is that this is not theory. This is not a bunch of paranoid computer nerds in the corner being like, you might get hacked. You know, this like this exists. The research proves that security vulnerabilities exist. So that's key lesson number one. Lesson number two is that attackers exploit them. So again, this is one of these things where you see in a lot of boardrooms, people are like, well, show me the risk, give me the number, give me the forecast, the impact, blah, blah, blah. They're like, they're trying to think about this theoretical conceptual thing as if like maybe someone would hack a company. But no, the path of research shows that number one, vulnerabilities exist. Number two, attackers exploit them. And then number three, the lesson that I think comes out of all of this is that when working in partnership, security researchers, ethical hackers, you know, people who come from our corner of the world truly are able to help drive security advancements for companies who are building things. And it's a really, really beautiful relationship because if someone is building something, that's their mission, right? Their mission is they see a problem and they want to go solve that problem and they're going to solve that problem with technology. Well, they're not necessarily every waking moment of every day thinking about how to break that technology. So that's why you bring in this sort of outside expertise. It's similar to why companies bring in outside counsel, outside consultants to, from whether it's marketing or anything else. You bring in these outside experts who focus in a certain area, have that expertise and can really drive your mission forward so you can focus on your core business. So when I look at the many years of security research, it's, it's really those three things that number one, security vulnerabilities exist. Number two, attackers exploit them. And number three, when there's a partnership with ethical hackers, you're actually able to really drive meaningful improvements in security. Let's hit that point three. You mentioned earlier this idea of community and, and vision back to your political activism. I know you guys have done a lot of leadership work on something called IoT Village. So an event whose hacking contest, as we said, produced three DEF CON black badges. Tell us a bit about this cybersecurity ecosystem and what inspired you to create it. Yeah, so IoT Village is, I sometimes call it a traveling circus. That maybe makes it sound goofier than it is. It's actually a pretty serious thing. But basically what it is, is we go to different security conferences and we invite or select people who apply to speak who are doing really cool research or whatever. Not all conferences are we having speakers, but in many of them, there's a speaker element. We have a variety of contests, like a capture the flag style contest where you know we set up a system of vulnerable devices and people get certain points if they can attack them or whatever. We have sponsors who bring sometimes their products so that people can poke at them. Like we had one year GE, their medical device division and their appliance division also, which are two completely different companies. They brought devices to the event. Bird scooters brought scooters to the event. 
Uh, I forget what the manufacturer was who brought uh, an ATM. All these people bring these things and then people are able to now go hack on them. And that, of course, enhances the skills of the researchers who are doing that. But it's also a benefit to those sponsors, right, who are like, wow, I just got all this essentially free research. And then it's a good look for them to be collaborating with the research community. And community is an incredibly important word, not just to IoT Village. I mean, to our to ISE, our, our culture, like in our mission statement, community is one of the very few words in that statement is we're building a community. And I think community is important because if we think even all the way back to caveman days, right, when we we're in tribes, nomadic, moving from place to place before the invention of agriculture, really survival was dependent on the people around you. And so many of the aspects of the way humans interact with each other comes from that sort of tribal instinct that many, many, many hundreds, thousands of years later, it's still ingrained in us. And I think cybersecurity has those same requirements or same principles where community matters because you can't secure a company as a person. You can't secure an industry as a person. You can't foster innovation of a brand new technology category. Like you mentioned cryptocurrency before, 20 years ago, that idea didn't exist. And, or at least in its current format, it didn't. Like the idea of a blockchain didn't exist. And by having a community, you now take all these different skills that people have, you're able to combine them, you're able to knowledge transfer from one person to another. And it's the proverbial, a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's why community really matters. So when we think about IoT Village or we think about our company in particular, community is really important because we're all in this together. It's a requirement that we all have to make, make each other better. And when we do those things, that's how we'll succeed. But if we do not do those things, we have no chance of winning. A big portion of community you mentioned a moment ago is really this idea of a rising tide, you thought leadership. And you've clearly personally played a leading component of that by publishing your best-selling book, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. What was the core thesis of the book? Well, I wrote this book because I saw a couple things happening. The first thing that I noticed was, as we've discussed here, I'm in this position to lead this group of ethical hackers. And so we work with companies all the time. And I found myself, I was having the same conversations over and over and over and over again with our customers, with prospective customers, with people out in the industry, out in the community. And I started thinking about that. And I realized that the problems that everybody has when it comes to securing their software systems, they all fall into pretty much 10 categories. Now, not everyone refers to them as those, they might not all use the same words, but the concepts kind of, there's like kind of 10 different concepts. And I thought that was really interesting once I noticed that. It's like, I'm having like the same 10 conversations. And I thought that was really interesting when I noticed it. And then I started thinking about, well, how do you solve for those 10 problems? And that was really the moment, the lightning strike that was like, you have to write this book. You are now required to, it is no longer, uh, this would be interesting. It is, it is a mission. You must do this. Because I realized that the conventional solutions, the way that most people talk about solving those problems that kind of everybody has, were wrong. Now think about that. Here you have a person, company, organization, whatever. They identify some opportunity in the marketplace. They see a problem they can go solve. And the way they want to go solve it is they want to solve it with technology. So they set out to build a system that's going to solve this problem. It's going to change the world. They recognize along the way that security matters. And they realize they have some problems to achieve a secure system. So they go and try to solve their problems. And the answers they get to how to solve those problems are wrong. That's bonkers. I found that to be completely unacceptable. And I mean, that day, pretty much I outlined the book and that is the purpose of the book. It's written for 
basically your chief technology officers or really anyone who's responsible for the security of a system, but security might not even be their whole job. It's also written so that security professionals can understand this aspect of the business. Like maybe they're in a different area of security and they don't understand application security. And then it's also written so that developers who are building these systems can understand the principles. And the outcome that I hope that people get out of this for those audiences is that they will first understand what the problems really are, understand the correct way to solve those problems, and then be able to have actionable advice about how to go solve them. The way I think about it is uh, solution patterns. If you think of usually IT architecture, right? They'll define certain patternized cases and say, here's some best practices towards achieving it. I think beyond that, what you've done is you've looked at this thing systemically, i.e. this isn't just software, isn't just hardware, isn't just the communications. It's really the full stack the periphery of any of which could form a least common denominator attack. And so taking a systems approach to this, looking for those least common denominators, I imagine, is, uh, is certainly a critical way to approach that. It's an interesting time. I mentioned right up front, of course, I'm here in, in Europe and Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and concurrently the whole cybersecurity attacks that they've perpetrated on Western nations have really been unprecedented, of course, affecting the lives of millions of people. What do you think these brutal attacks have taught us relative to cybersecurity of critical infrastructure? Yeah, there's a funny saying, well, maybe not funny, but there's a saying on the security community that is, never waste a crisis. <laughs> and I do not mean to make light of a very, very serious situation in Europe. My point was that that you're asking this question is itself the silver lining of this situation. You see it the same whenever there's a major hack, right? Like that major hack that Sony went through, the major a target breach, all these, these big issues make people start to think about security differently. And so while it is, of course, just robust tragedy that's going to echo through probably generations, to be honest, that we're having this conversation, I think, is a good thing. And the reason that I'm pointing all that out is that the security implications, the cybersecurity implications of nation states attacking each other and attacking critical infrastructure, that issue has been present for decades. But now that we're talking about it, that is what matters, right? Not that it didn't matter before, but the point is that this issue existed before. We're now finally talking about these things. People are it's starting to register on the awareness of the average person that this might be a problem that we really have to invest in. I mean, you even look at some of the things that have happened recently in the United States, the colonial pipeline issue, that gas <laughs> was unavailable on the East Coast of the United States for, I forget how long, I want to say like a couple of days or something. That was critical infrastructure that was made unavailable as a result of a cyber attack. And I believe it was Obama in maybe in his first term who officially declared cyber as a theater of war. So theaters of war, you know, sea, air, land, space is now one and cyber has officially been declared one. And I totally agree with that because if you think about just strategy, right? I'm not a general. I don't know anything about how to launch a war. But if I was going to say, could I do something that would make critical services unavailable, like first responders, even missile defense systems, whatever, delivery of power, delivery of water, if I can make those unavailable 
while also deploying a physical, traditional sea, air, or land-based attack, I would want to do that, right, if I'm engaged in a war. And so we're seeing these things happening. I mean, nations are constantly attacking each other already, as it is. And then when a moment of actual war happens, now we're seeing these things you don't see. You don't see a cyber attack happening. You hear about it, like it's happening in the background. And then when uh, a war happens, now it's thrust to the forefront. So this is a very real problem for all nations around the world, the United States included, all nations in Europe. And it's something that every nation is going to have to contend with. I like your thought about the theater of war. And one might argue, if you look at Vietnam, it was described as the first war that was basically televised by mass media, right? Uh, of course, CNN got its start doing the same for Desert Storm, arguably. And this war seems to be the one where that cybersecurity element might actually be one of the strongest theaters of that. Both think about the social media campaign that the Ukraine has run quite successfully. Think about the cyber attacking of Russian data sources, primarily personnel records for all the soldiers being deployed, right? And spies and things like that. So it's interesting that so much of this has manifested itself on the cyber side, of course. There's a whole set of attacks that have happened on OT infrastructure as well. And by OT, operational technology. So, you know, basically the infrastructure that's running the energy grids, manufacturing, transportation, and war. Let me ask, what changes have you seen in demand for your services relative to what I would consider OT systems and use cases? So we focus primarily in the commercial sector. So we haven't really been working with, I mean, we do have clients in the government, but we haven't directly been working on things like the power grid. There's been some research that we've done in that area. But one of the things that's been really fascinating to see is you know, people ask us sometimes about like, what are your areas of expertise? And we have all of the sort of core areas of expertise that you'd want an ethical hacking company to have. But what's really fascinating is that where the demand is, like we can't even reinstall the door, it keeps getting kicked down <laughs> so hard, is for application security. People who are building apps, which you know, software runs the world, and pretty much every function of every business across the planet is either already moving to the use of apps to run that part of the business or is on the way to doing that. And so that has been really, really fascinating. People might look at the distribution of our work and say, oh, it looks like you don't do as much network security, for example, as application security. And we're like, we can, <laughs> we have all the people. Like, It's just that the demand for application security is so high and, and there's so few organizations who have that specialty. And so I wouldn't say that necessarily is being driven because of nation states attacking each other, but I think that is being driven by the economics and business benefits that come because of the, you know, sort of the value optimization or whatever corporate jargon you want to throw around that, that software can deliver to a business and to governments. As investors, we always like to look at interesting trends in the space. So we've invested in zero trust security with a company called Zage in the Bay Area. We've actually had quite a few companies that have rolled across our radar as of late talking about quantum encryption techniques. What key technologies and trends are you watching relative to the future of cybersecurity? The big one that I think everyone is talking about, if I was an investor, I'd be thinking about too, but with a big asterisk to it, is things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
everybody really wants these things to solve most of the security problems that exist today. Like, how do you deliver a, a good service? And people think, oh, well, the machines will do it for us. And unfortunately, I just don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Maybe not even in our lifetime where artificial intelligence will be able to deliver security as well as you know, a human can do it. And that's crazy when you think about it, because we're like, well, humans are dumb and computers are smart. <laughs> like, let's, let's build a computer to do a thing. But I just don't see that. But that is an area that I see a lot of people really interested in. So even if it's not like, hey, one day we're going to get to a point where artificial intelligence replaces the need for humans to secure systems, there are all of these pro like sub-problem to a sub-problem to a sub-problem that machine learning and artificial intelligence are able to you know, help and get smarter at. So wherever there's things that maybe take a lot of manual effort to do and we can automate those types of things, that's where a lot of winning is happening for sure. So my caution, security is such an awesome space, but the one place that I just sort of talked about how a lot of people are talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, but where I see the most exciting part of all of security is in third-party risk management. And that sounds so unsexy just saying that term. I, I totally get it. People are like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but what it it's is- insurance is company? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow, Ted, way to put me to sleep. No, but I think it's the most, potentially the most important problem across security, the most underserved and the most misunderstood. But what third-party risk management is, also called vendor risk management, is the idea that every company Every government, every academic institution, every nonprofit has to work with third parties. They subscribe to or license applications. They hire outside contractors, consultants, service providers, whatever. Across the board, they're hiring people or companies or software products to help them. And those people, those companies, those products are not in-house. How do you secure all that? How do you know that when you're entrusting this third party with access to what's most valuable to you, how do you know that they're doing it right? I mean, I mentioned Target earlier. That Target breach was like 2013, I think. And that was a third party that was compromised. And because that was where the breach started was a supplier that helps with the HVAC in stores. That supplier was compromised. And then with that privileged position, the attackers were able to expand the attack, ultimately get to the payment systems and steal a whole bunch of credit cards. And that's a great example of where it almost, not to, uh, this is definitely not meaning to diminish any other part of security, but it's almost like if you don't solve for that problem, everything else you're doing doesn't matter. You have like that problem is critically important, but it's so hard to solve because it exists outside the walls of any given company. We're so passionate about this problem, actually, that we ourselves built a software product that helps manage that process itself. Because what happens is a lot of companies, they do the security assessments either themselves or work with someone else. They make their vendors fill out questionnaires and all this stuff. And it's, how do you manage all that? And a lot of companies, they just emails and spreadsheets, right? They have their vendors email them their reports. They store it locally somewhere or maybe on a cloud service. And then they have a spreadsheet that describes the status of a given vendor. And we're like, no, there's got to be a better way to do this. And we're not the only people who have identified this is a critical, critical area in security. But that's the area that I'm super excited about. You know, it's the very nature, though, of partnerships. You, know, you can describe the Target HVAC one as a good example, but those are very formal, if you will, one company engaging with another and doing some level of integration. Given the post-COVID working environment, gig economies, fractional remote workers, et cetera, in some sense, that probably plays in small part 
but collectively as large of a risk as well, right? You're working with a BY or bring your own device scenarios with uh, small one and two person companies, trying to engage them collectively to be part of your all value proposition of a company. So it sounds like your software uh, is well-timed for the big and for the small cases in that regard. Yeah, right. So the way you just described it, I totally agree. That exact dynamic that you just described is essentially the way that movies are made. Uh, A lot of people don't know this. A lot of people think, pick your movie studio. They, you go onto a studio lot and everyone who's there from the person operating the camera to the person who puts in the flames or whatever, the CGI flames, all work for that studio. That's actually not the way that it works. The way that movies are made is almost everybody doesn't work for the studio. You've got all these specialists, and then you've got these sort of interesting power dynamics where you've got if a particular director, maybe imagine someone like Steven Spielberg. If Steven Spielberg wants something, it's happening, right? He's like, I want to use this particular person because this person makes the best crash sounds, (laughs) and I need his crash sounds for my film. That person is just one person, right? Or in some cases, two or three, and security is not what they're thinking about. And so here's the studio who is making this, you know, maybe they're investing $250 million in making the next blockbuster. And somewhere along that chain is a single individual who does not work for the studio, who has access to that digital file. And most of the money that's made in a movie, it's like two thirds of it or something is made in the first three weeks of theatrical release. So they want to make sure it doesn't get stolen before it hits theatrical release. So the movie business has really been focused on this third-party security problem for a long time, and it is a massive, massive issue. I'm only describing the movie business because it's illustrative, but this same problem exists across industries. Yeah, anywhere you've digitized your IP. And that's a great case study in terms of movies, especially because many working arrangements are often thought of as, you know, kind of bringing together, if you will, a whole set of creative elements and then disbanding for the next project, right, or the next company. So, and I think we'll see more of that with, again, post-COVID working patterns. So, Ted, in closing, where do you find your personal inspiration? Mm, Well, I like that question. I mean, it sounds maybe trite to say it, but it's the truth. I'm so inspired by the people that I get to lead. They're so incredibly intelligent. When I think about, you mentioned, you were asking about the early, earlier days of my career when I did this volunteer thing around political activism. And that time in my life, I remember really vividly going from the academic experience, right? Being in college. And I was really fortunate that where I went to college, I was in awe of the intelligence of the people that were around me. And I found that such an inspiring place to be. You know, being surrounded by other smart people is invigorating to me. It challenges me in a positive way, not in like a competitive way, but in a like, hey, these people are all smart. I got to make sure that I'm bringing it too. And then I remember graduating, going out into the quote unquote real world and realizing like, man, the density of intelligent people just isn't the same as it is in an academic institution. It's just different. There's a lot more people that are just kind of fine to just coast in their life or whatever. I remember being really disappointed by that. And then fast forward a few years to when I met Steve, my business partner, and ultimately we decided to do this ISE 2.0 business. And all of a sudden I found myself again in that intellectual environment. And I'm just in awe of like the things that the people in our organization, the way they see the world. And and it's broader than just our company. I think the security community overall is just filled with such smart, passionate people who make me think differently and challenge me to be better. And 
I think that's incredibly inspiring when you can see people who are motivated and passionate about the field that they're doing, not just because they're trying to earn a paycheck. I mean, of course, like everyone, they're trying to earn a living, but because it matters and they can use this like profound intelligence they have to solve these problems that impact people all over the planet. How could I not be inspired by that every day? It's a blessing that that's how I get to live my life every day. Well, passion is attracted to passion. So I'd say that you're doing your part to attract it and delete it at the same time. So, well, Ted, thank you for sharing this time and these great insights with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. So this has been Ted Harrington, author of the number one bestseller, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right, and executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening. 